Welcome to In Social Work, the podcast series of the University at Buffalo School of Social Work at www.insocialwork.org. We're glad you could join us today. The purpose of In Social Work is to engage practitioners and researchers in lifelong learning and to promote research to practice and practice to research. We're In Social Work. Hello. I'm Charles Sims, your host for this episode of In Social Work. The Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, or as it is often called, the DSM, is a principal guide utilized in the United States for diagnosing behavioral health disorders. In May of 2013, the fifth edition of the DSM was released. Its publication was the culmination of more than 10 years of work by the American Psychiatric Association. However, the resulting manual has been the subject of concern and controversy over its structure as well as the changes, additions, and removal of diagnoses and their criteria. Today, even after publication, questions still remain concerning its use. This podcast features two social work educators, both of whom have had significant practice experience. They will explore some of these changes and controversies from the social work perspective. In November of 2013, Drs. Robert Keefe and Barbara Rittner, members of the University at Buffalo School of Social Work faculty, sat down to discuss the new DSM. An associate professor, Dr. Keefe has been with the faculty at the School of Social Work since 2005. He has previously held faculty positions at Syracuse University and the University of Memphis. Dr. Keefe teaches courses in social work practice in health and mental health care settings. His research focuses on factors that inhibit the provision of and access to health and mental health care by historically oppressed populations. Dr. Rittner is also an associate professor as well as the associate dean for advancement at the School of Social Work. She has been a member of the faculty at the school for more than 17 years. Dr. Rittner has also held faculty positions at the University of Georgia and the University of Nevada, Reno. She began her teaching career as an adjunct professor at Barry University in Miami. Her research interests include child welfare, children at risk, and mental health issues. And now, Dr. Robert Keefe and Dr. Barbara Rittner. I'm Barbara Rittner with the University at Buffalo School of Social Work, and Rob Keefe and I are going to have a conversation today about the DSM-IV-TR and the movement into the DSM-V. Rob also is on the School of Social Work at the University at Buffalo, and both of us come from a clinical background, so we're going to approach this somewhat as clinicians would, thinking about what this transition is about. and what the implications are for social work practice. And I think one of the key questions that has been asked around the country, not just locally, but broadly, is what took so long in getting the new edition of the DSM out for general consumption among clinicians nationwide? And I think that might be a good place just for us to start. It's an interesting issue because in 2006, I mean, to get a perspective of just how long it took, 
they had the first kind of suggestions about what the new DSM-5 was going to look like, and they were talking then about what it was going to be. But there's a history of getting these things out later than expected, with some exceptions. And I don't think most people know that the DSM was really a response in the late 1970s to Medicare coming in and billable services and what constituted reasonable and customary charges for people with psychiatric illnesses. And if the American Psychiatric Association couldn't come up with that, then they couldn't bill for their services for people who were covered under Medicare. So in 1984, very, in actually a pretty quick run at it, they put out the, the DSM-3. And frankly, it was a somewhat of a disaster. It was field tested only for usability. It had no reliability or validity. And so they very quickly came up, and it's the only time it happened very quickly with the DSM-3R. And that was because the National Institutes of Health rejected it and said it was unusable and they wouldn't fund any studies. And this is an important consideration moving forward. It actually took them until 1994 to come up with the first DSM-4. And then about six years later, came up with the DSM-4TR. And that was about the time they started talking about what the five would look like. And there were conceptual issues that I think partly created the lag time. The conceptual issues were the DSM up until then had been very neo-Capalian. It was around categories of mental illness, characteristics of those mental illnesses, some presumptions about exclusions of one mental illness for the other. Some are logical. You're not both bipolar and a unipolar mood disorder. Those are kind of natural exclusions. But they also created some artificial ones, like you could not not both have major depressive disorder and mental retardation. And people said, oh, really? Yeah. That's not what I'm right. seeing in the field. So they wanted to move from this kind of dimensional categorical into a more, I mean, this neocrypalian categorical concept into spectrum and dimensional disorders. And that was a huge shift in terms of the way it was conceptualized. So first they had to sell the membership on the shift. Then they had to talk about how it was going to be structured. Then they had to create the structures. And then they started creating the work groups. And at that point, it kind of grind to a halt because some of the work groups were very productive and lots of them were not sure. so productive. Mm -hmm. So part of the lag time was because this was going to represent a dramatic shift in how the DSM was approaching the question of what's mental illness. And the domain, the diagnostic domain of psychiatrists, which also explains why there's a lot of wake-sleep disorders and restless leg syndrome and other stuff, in the DSM because many psychiatrists, in fact, I think most of them who are board certified are board certified in both neurology and psychiatry. So it tends to cover stuff that other people consider more medical domain than psychiatric domain. I don't know if that answers the question, mm -hmm. but that's kind of why it just took so long. Well, when talking about, one of the points you mentioned is with regard to spectrum disorders, and I think a lot of our listeners would be very familiar with autism, for instance, which it, along with Asperger's, is often seen, is now seen as a spectrum. In the DSM-5, there were other diagnoses that were thought to potentially be along a spectrum, particularly the mood disorders. 
with depression and anxiety. And there had been a fair bit of research coming out about that possibility. But I never quite understood why that went belly up. Why didn't they take mm-hmm. that further? They, meaning the American Psychiatric Association, take it further as a way to include that in the DSM. Well, actually, there was a whole disorder they were going to include in there. It was kind of interesting. This came out of now the head of the National Institutes of Mental Health's work, a man by the name of Dr. Insom, I-N-S-E-M. And he was one of the people who first observed that when they were using medication for depression on people who also were comorbid for anxiety, both seemed to be resolving. And the issue was, what was the prominent presenting symptom, the anxiety spectrum or the depressive spectrum? And in fact, in those days, before CBT and some of the other sort of more effective ways of treating both of those disorders, medication, hands down, was more effective than traditional psychotherapy. The problem is, is when they actually started trying to do research on this, and the NIMH supported it, was, was there really a spectrum disorder of anxiety and depression where the intensity in both paralleled each other rather than the potential for comorbid Mm -hmm. diagnoses? What became obvious is that you mostly had a comorbid diagnosis. That is, people who were vulnerable for unipolar depression seemed to be more vulnerable for some of the anxiety disorders, but not all of the anxiety disorders. And so then you were back to, well, are you talking about depression and generalized anxiety disorder, depression and social phobia, depression and, you know, what exactly are you talking about here? And so despite an effort to create this continuum, it went belly up in your very good term because there is very little research to support it. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, it was also, by the way, the same time where the efficacy of SSRIs with depression right. And, right. and anxiety disorders was also emerging. Yeah. And in fact, it turns out that SSRIs are no more effective in treating depression than these days, the sort of more evidence-based treatment protocols using CBT or trauma-focused mm-hmm. CBT or DMT or any one of a variety of sort of cognitive approaches to treating these disorders. Mm-hmm. I think among the controversies here has been which diagnoses are going to be excluded. And we do know that with the Axis II disorders, for instance, where a lot of insurance companies, for instance, didn't want to pay for the treatment of those disorders, it seemed that for a while the arguments were we should just get rid of them from the DSM. Now, I'm not saying that's the reason for removing them from the DSM, but we do know that I believe it was around 10 of the diagnoses. Was it 10? It's around there. Yeah, okay. And, you know, and people weigh in differently on some of them. Mm-hmm. Um, personally, because I hated teaching it and I never could <laughs> diagnose it, I was so relieved to get rid of somatoform undifferentiated yeah. because I couldn't figure out what it was. Well, I don't think I ever had a client with that diagnosis. I, I may have had one in the 80s. Right. I think I might have had one, but anyway. And, and what's really the difference between that and a somatoform? Right. Whether, you know, right. or hypochondria, mm-hmm. which has been renamed. They've all been renamed. So the question is, did they really eliminate 10 of them or did they rename some right. of them? Yeah. And that's also causing some of the confusion because they have renamed a number mm-hmm. of them. On the other hand, bringing that up, there are some things that people expected them to eliminate that mm-hmm. they didn't. And people are going, but I thought they were going to eliminate right. that. Right. 
And that was also somewhat controversial in the same way that they eliminated, for instance, dissociative disorder fugue. The reality is the research coming out of the Netherlands, in particular Nienhuss's stuff, is highly suggestive that that is a very important subdivision, and it's included in the ICD-10, around people who, under high stress, become dissociative. Mm -hmm. um, it's not what we used to think of where it's sort of the movie version where you go off to a new town right, and become right. a new person and, and you don't remember who you are. It's really around the sort of profound depersonalization, derealization that occurs with people with trauma histories, mm -hmm. particularly later onset trauma history, meaning over the age of six or so or people who come back from war and have a disconnect with their sense of self. Mm -hmm. And under stress, it can become very heightened. And Neonhus and other have done some neuroimaging that suggests that, that that is a phenomenon that is part of the dissociative component. But it's out. So the, some of the elimination is not substantiated by the research. Some of it, like somatoform undifferentiated, is pretty mm -hmm. well supported by the research. Mm -hmm. So. Despite the claims that the, that the American Psychiatric Association was going to base this on the research, it's not entirely clear that they were remaining current with the research as they did it, because the problem with these is the research is always moving right. ahead of any right. publication. Right. I think of all the social workers in our community, and prior to coming to Buffalo, I had taught psychopathology for a number of years, and, and you've certainly taught it for a number of years here. I'm wondering what types of things are you hearing from social workers in the community? What are their concerns about the new DSM? And it begs the question to me, what are we then to do as instructors about those concerns that people are having in the community? I think probably the biggest ticket item that's out there is this kind of underlying continuous concern that the DSM has two main problems, one of which is it's set the bar so low for what constitutes pathology, that it's not really factoring in normal variances in human behavior and the functionality of that. Mm -hmm. And so it really kind of promotes, and for social workers this is always concerning, the pathologizing of normal behavior. And I think as advocates we need to be supportive of that. The other one that's probably the one that I have found the most interesting to follow is that in the 16 dimensions that DSM has, they have been to some degree clustered around what would be considered types of medication. These diagnoses, it's part of the reason they separated bipolar and major depressive disorders because those are different medication protocols. Mm -hmm. So there's been a kind of controversial undergirding to this thing about whether or not the pharmaceutical company's contribution to the funding for doing the DSM also compromised the DSM by making it, in essence, a handbook for the categories of medication. Mm -hmm. My instinct was to be a little suspicious of that mm -hmm. initially. But a couple of years ago, I was at the International Society for Traumatic Stress Studies when this was in 2012, just before the DSM-5 was being released in the fall. And the head of whose name I'm now drawing a blank, uh, the World Health Organization's organization for the what are known as the F10 through F11 
I think it's 40 or something, uh, 99 categories. These are the neurological and biological mental illness categories. Mm-hmm. Started talking about how the DSM-5 and the ICD-10 differ. And because it's a medical conference, disclaimers have to be made the minute you approach the podium, mm-hmm. who you've been supportive of. And what he, he stood up and he said, we're with the World Health Organization. I have no conflict of interest. And our research has not been supported by any organization other than the World Health Organization and the United Nations. And there was a thunderous applause. So in a way, it suggests that that, that these concerns that the DSM-5 has somewhat been too focused on category by medication, that is, medication diagnosis match, rather than the research that would say these are how the diagnoses are manifesting and here's the research to support it, I'm beginning to think might be a concern that social workers should have. Mm -hmm. That is, is it in essence promoting the use of psychotropic medication pretty continuously and at a pretty low level? And so I think it's a real concern. I also think the reality of today's practice of medicine is that physicians make their income, in essence, by doing diagnosis and prescribing medications. They don't really have time to do a lot of psychotherapy. So it's easy to find fault with them, but I think the practice realities for psychiatry has become pretty complicated. That said, so people are wondering whether they should adopt it. There are two things they ought to think about up front. First of all is the National Institutes of Mental Health said that at this point they are not using the DSM-5 on grant applications. They are recommending the ICD-10, ICD-9, ICD-10. Now, INSOM got some heavy pushback from the American Psychiatric Association because this is the same thing that happened with the DSM-3. When the National Institutes of Mental Health said it's not good enough for us, American Psychiatric Association had, in essence, a schematic that was not really usable by most researchers and consequently neither insurance companies nor practitioners. So they very quickly, within four years, got the 3R out. The same thing is sort of sitting here right now, but Insom backed up and said, well, but part of it is, well, he found it interesting, his word. Uh, The National Institutes of Mental Health are moving now towards trying to figure out what actually causes most mental illness, because the reality is, with very few of them, we don't have a clue what's causing most of the mental illnesses that we have labeled with a variety of labels. We know what the symptom cluster looks like for depression, but we don't really know what causes it, which is part of the problem with SSRIs. What we do know is that the high rate of prescribing SSRIs very rapidly drove a very high rate of conversion to bipolar disorder, which is, we sort of started tracking it in the 1990s. By 10 years later, when Zaretta and some of the other folks had been looking at this, the correlation between the SSRI prescription rate and the increased rate of bipolar disorder was a very convincing match. So I think in a way, INSOM is not entirely wrong to step back and say, wait a minute, before we keep testing medications, maybe the emphasis in the National Institutes of Mental Health ought to be on trying to figure out 
what causes these manifestations of mental illness? What are the biological, neurobiological components of this? Now, the American Psychological Association went after it because of the research. Mm -hmm. When they went out and tried to field trial this new DSM, and frankly, it's not that it's so confusing because all the diagnoses you're used to are still mostly in there. What had changed was the descriptors had changed. We used to have a kind of much clearer sense of, you know, you need five of symptoms of these possible symptoms in depression over a two-week period for adults, one week if it's a kid. And you need to have some exclusions, like it's not provoked by medication, i.e. cardiac patients taking calcium channel blockers or beta blockers both have a tendency to produce on the medications symptoms that look like depression. So there were some exclusions that were in there. So now the descriptions are very much broader. And so when people try to match the case study to the descriptions, the kappas came out at 0.26, which right. are really poor. Right, right, they really are. They are pretty much comparable to blind poking an answer mm -hmm. rather than actually trying to use the criteria to diagnose the disorder. The American Psychiatric Association said, well, they're no better or worse than they were in the earlier ones, which frankly isn't a great reason <laughs> <laughs> to accept it. Mm -hmm. The American Psychological Association said, no, it's really bad. Mm -hmm. And so they have rejected it as lacking both reliability and validity. And so my advice to social workers out in the field is kind of to take a wait and see. And I'm hedging my bet and I'm redoing psychopathology and I'm using both the ICD-10 and the DSM-5 because at this point, it doesn't seem as if it's going to be warmly embraced, the DSM-5. I think it's more likely to be considered. Mm -hmm. And it really begs the issue, why do we have to have something different than the rest of the world, the world is using? Yeah. And yeah. the rest of the world right. is using the ICD-10. I mean, literally, everybody but the United States uses the ICD-10. So mm -hmm. why do we need a different schematic for mental mm -hmm. illness than the one, and, and originally it had better things than the ICD in the axis. It had the five axis, which allowed us to think complexly to thinking about how globally functional somebody was. And they took the axis out. So the one thing that was distinctive about the DSM is no longer a part of it. Well, and as a, a social worker, I am very concerned about removing any axes in general, particularly those that help us to get a clear idea of a client's context, of the life the client lives. And with the removal of any of the axes, particularly something like Axis 4, which is telling us some of the psychosocial issues that our clients face, and it just helps contextualize the real life experiences of our clients. And can you help us to understand why the APA would decide to remove an axis when we have good research that substantiates its use? Beats me. <laughs> <laughs> I, and I'm not really being glib. I think, in a way, the issue of the ICD-10 is partly what drove okay. it. They were trying to look, in some ways, more like the ICD-10 and to align 
so that people could work theoretically across both manuals. Of course, that begs the question, why would you bother? But to work yeah, across yeah. both manuals. And I think they were right. You know, for those of us who worked with the medical profession mm-hmm. in, in mental health settings and in health settings where psychiatric evaluation was done, the truth is very rarely did you ever see anything put down on anything other than Axis one. Yes. And sometimes access yes. to if it was a personality yes. disorder. And the rest of it include, and then there would be this gaff. And I was never really sure how somebody came up with the gaff, mm-hmm. you know, the global assessment of functioning, without considering the biopsychosocial stressors that the person had mm-hmm. at the same time as you're looking at the presentation of this mental illness. So there's no question that for those of us who approached it as social workers, the five axes were very helpful mm-hmm. in thinking through. It's sort of like when you know somebody's had a traumatic brain injury and you don't go to the axis three to see where the injury is and what part of their functioning is going to be compromised as a result of, of that injury and then to think about what the implications are in terms of their activities of daily living, their social structure, whether or not moving them could cause problems with disorientation and dislocation. Mm-hmm. You know, all of those things were very helpful, particularly for caseworkers and social workers in medical settings, as you well know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. to begin mm-hmm. to think about what the issues were in terms of both uh, setting up a case plan and, or setting up a treatment plan. And so for me, the loss, and for many of us, the loss was confusing. But if you look at if this is not really the American... S- mental health practitioners manual. It's the American Psychiatric Association's Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. It's intended for psychiatrists Mm -hmm. who frankly didn't use it very much. So I think the answer is in who the audience was. But the problem is, is most of the people doing diagnoses these days are not psychiatrists. Mm -hmm. There Mm -hmm. are a lot more of us than there were of them. Mm -hmm. So its efficacy for us is, I think, more confusing. Mm-hmm. And I think for somebody like you who comes out of the medical setting, right. then I think you know the issue is actually even more difficult. Right. With the diagnosis on axis three, where we're looking at the healthcare issues, the medical diagnoses are very important. They help give some idea of the severity, perhaps, of axis one. So if we have a substance abuse disorder on axis one, it's very helpful to know if there's something going on on axis three, such as problems with the liver or problems with kidneys as a result of substance use. Or skin problems when we're talking about intravenous drug use, like dermatitis and cellulitis. That helps us in our treatment planning because it gives us an idea of what other services that we need to be mindful of that our clients are going to have to access in the course of their treatment. I think that the ICD is a very important issue for us to be considering in this country. The ICD does not come out as a new addition very often. Doesn't the DSM actually come out more frequently than does the ICD? And I'm wondering if there's some research or some indication that the ICD perhaps is less current or is based on less current research than is the DSM. Is that an argument that American Psychiatric Association may be using to keep putting forward new editions of the DSM when other uh, professional groups are advocating for the ICD? You're absolutely right in that sense, but the interesting thing about the ICD-10 is that it also doesn't change a whole lot to them. Mm -hmm. Depression is depression. Bipolar is bipolar. They have nine clusters. 
as opposed to 16 clusters. So they're in much bigger categories. And interestingly enough, the ICD is not something you use to figure out what the diagnosis is. It's something you use to confirm what the diagnosis is. It presumes almost that you're in the mental health field. And remember, this is something that is also the medical schematic. The ICD is not exclusive to psychiatry or to mental health issues. So just above it, as I remember, are something like infectious diseases. So it really is intended for a practitioner who thinks maybe that somebody has a behavioral syndrome associated with physiological disturbances that include, for instance, eating and sleeping disorders. And so they might go in there simply to figure out which one of those it is, but it presumes that the person already knows something about that. Mm -hmm. It's really based around educated, and then this is a manual to get you, in essence, to get, make sure you've got the right label. Mm -hmm. It's much less intended to, if you read the DSM, it really talks about prevalence levels and, yes. and other stuff, which is not in the ICD. Right. The ICD does not presume to tell us whether we should expect it more in this group or less in that group. I think that's actually one of the shortcomings of the ICD-10. And I think it's one of the strengths, continues to be the strengths of the DSM-5, is there's some effort, not a sufficient effort, to look at differential diagnosis in children and the aging population. They promised to do more of that in the original schematic for the DSM-5 than they actually produced in terms of whether a bipolar 10-year-old, a true bipolar 10-year-old, looks different than a 30-year-old with mm -hmm. bipolar and, disorder. You know, that was one of the things that I really wanted us to talk about, that the DSM-5 did promise that there would be more age-appropriate criteria. And that really was an issue with the earlier DSM in the sense that sometimes the criteria didn't really differ much based on the age of the person you're evaluating. Mm -hmm. you know, they did with major depression, where we would say, well, two weeks for one versus a longer period of time for somebody else who's older. In general, has the, the APA been successful in the development of the DSM-5 with developing more age-appropriate criteria? Frustratingly, no. Okay. In fact, <laughs> it was interesting. At that same conference that I mentioned, the ISTSS conference, First, who is now the chair of the DSM-5 version, he replaced Spitzer, stood up before this group and said an interesting thing about how we came up with the two-week diagnosis. He said a bunch of psychiatrists basically sat around saying, well, how long? Well, you know, one month is too long. By then, the person could be fully suicidal. So, and one week isn't really long enough. So we'll hit the middle. We'll do two weeks. And he said, literally, that's how some of those time dimensions so I was surprised when I saw that that hadn't changed at all. As we know, there's pretty strong evidence, depending on the type of depression that you have, that exactly what you said, aging populations tend to have a slower, more cumulative trajectory towards a major depressive disorder, so it bears watching over a period of time. Mm -hmm. And kids can be profoundly depressed very, very quickly. Now, he did recognize that they said, well, we'll use one week for kids because they tend to do it faster. So I was actually hoping more to see that. Probably the biggest disappointment in that is that in the psychiatric disorders, there is a lot of literature, very important literature now, on what early onset schizophrenia and childhood onset schizophrenia looks like and how it differs from what you see 
and adult onset schizophrenia, both in terms of the nature of the symptom presentation, but also the intensity of them. And there's almost no age differentiation. And at the time they were putting this together, there was a substantial body of literature. It's mostly international literature, but there's a substantial body of literature on this stuff. So that's one of those promises we really wish that they had done a better job mm -hmm. on. They were also talking about cultural differences. Right. They still have culturally based diagnoses, which they had in the DSM-4-TR, things that are mm -hmm. unique to various cultures. But within the diagnosis, they didn't do much of that. And frankly, that becomes unwieldy because then you're including these groups, but not that group. And at what point do you stop including? Is it a titration issue? You know, you've mm -hmm. got to have mm -hmm. enough people that practitioners are going to bump into this, represented in the group. And mm -hmm. so, I mean, I think that was an ambitious sort of concept, but I think once the reality of trying to get it together, frankly, that's what the literature is for. If you're seeing a client and this client is from a culture that you're not familiar with, go do some research on right, it and right. figure out how this plays out if you're dealing with somebody who's Hmong. Mm -hmm. And this is the first time you've seen somebody who's from that group. And I think that we sometimes forget the DSM and the ICD are not, in essence, forgive the reference, but the Bible mm -hmm. of how you do this. Mm -hmm. It is really just basically a place for you to kind of organize your thoughts. But anybody who's not current in the literature doing this kind of practice is not practicing responsibly mm -hmm. because what's in the DSM and what's in the literature often vary significantly. And so I think we as faculty have an obligation right. to say, right. you know, stay current in the literature. Yeah. Don't presume that the DSM is going to be current in the literature because the last time it took 13 years for the new version to come out. And 13 years is a lot of change in the literature. One thing I'd like to focus on just a little bit is the issues around both acute stress disorder and post-traumatic stress disorder. We're seeing any number of people coming back from war-torn countries. We're seeing people move to this country from war-torn countries. And I think that issue of post-traumatic stress disorder brings together some of the issues and concerns we have around culture and how to approach our work with people from different cultures who have had clear trauma histories. The diagnosis of PTSD at one time was even thought to be perhaps an adjustment disorder because clearly you have a difficulty adjusting to trauma, which sounds very minimizing of us to say it that way, but that was an argument once about the diagnosis, and then should the diagnosis be considered among the anxiety disorders. So where is the APA now falling with respect to post-traumatic stress disorder? It was probably the bloodiest fight of all, and, mm -hmm. and some of them were really intense. A number of organizations, the Dissociative Disorders Organization, ISTSS, the mm -hmm. Trauma Disorder Organization, and a number of people in the VA and other practice environments with high rates of trauma did not think that it was appropriate for PTSD, acute stress disorder, to be clustered under anxiety. And there were good reasons for it not to be. But the American Psychiatric Association, to their credit, also didn't want to create lots of little tiny clusters. So the question was, 
does the anxiety that gets produced as a result of trauma constitute a anxiety disorder? And in fact, the anxiety disorders split out two things. They split out the obsessive compulsive mm-hmm. disorders, mm-hmm. and they split out the trauma and acute stress disorders. The interesting element about that was then what to do with adjustment disorders. And I think your point is well taken mm-hmm. about, well, you know, what is this continuum really from an adjustment disorder to acute stress disorder to PTSD? Ironically enough, which I find fascinating, this is one of the few areas where there's actually some fairly good understanding about what causes the symptoms, whether there are cultural differences or not. And this really is Rachel Yehuda's mm-hmm. amazingly mm-hmm. good work mm-hmm. about cortisol levels. Mm. And they first started publishing before Israeli soldiers, both men and women, because their women have been on front line much longer than ours have, had cortisol swabs done before they, at the point of induction into the army. Mm -hmm. And then depending on the amount of trauma, they then compared the amount of cortisol in the soldier's system when they came back and then looked at those against symptoms. And what they found was that cortisol, in fact, is a pretty good predictor of people who are going to have various levels of PTSD. We kind of understand what's causing it. And also its lingering impact long after the trauma is, quote, behind you, Mm -hmm. although it's not. It follows you around. So the question was, is this also true of people with adjustment disorder? Because up until then, PTSD had really been described predominantly as direct as opposed to vicarious traumatization. So if you survived because you were on leave when your unit got wiped out, theoretically you wouldn't have PTSD because you weren't in an imminent risk of dying situation. Oh yeah? Mm -hmm. You tell that to the person with PTSD symptoms. So we're now able, as a result of exactly what Insom is talking about, now that we understand a little bit more about the biology of PTSD, it is different than what you see in generalized anxiety disorder or social phobia or specific phobias. It really is quite different. So when we started looking at adjustment disorders, and I always think about this as every one of us listening to this has some friend who went through a divorce a number of years ago, and really it was an awful traumatic divorce, and it still controls their life in the same way that very often people who have had these traumatic experiences or motor vehicle accidents can measure their life before and after the trauma. And when they started looking at the neurobiology of these severe, traumatic, non-life-threatening events, they found much the same thing they were seeing with acute stress disorder and PTSD. So in this case, the bringing of those together made complete and total sense. And it's also consistent with the ICD-10, which has recognized it for a long time. Mm -hmm. So, you know, in this case, the DSM was way behind the ICD-10, which saw PTSD and stress disorders as a separate category. Now, as we're about to conclude, I think one of the things that might be helpful for our listeners would be for us to talk some about how we should move forward. Because there are problems with the DSM-5. There are problems, as you had mentioned, that we knew about with the DSM-3, which is why we got the DSM-3R. But... We do have the DSM-5. It is out there. With all of its controversies, it's out there. 
How should we now move forward with respect to the DSM-5? Is it something we should become clinically conversant in? Is it, should, do you think that we're going to perhaps stick with the DSM-4-TR until the ICD grabs a greater hold in this country? How should we move forward? These are difficult times because in essence, you're going to have to be conversant as a practitioner with all of them. In other mm-hmm. words, you're going to be getting case yeah. files that have ICD-10 diagnoses. Mm-hmm. You're going to have them with DSM-5. But of course, their history is going to be, quote, DSM-4. I don't mean to be a social worker here, <laughs> but so what? Yeah. I mean, the reality is that I think we have two responsibilities, one of which is to understand the role of social work and clinical social work and community-based social work is to try to create the best possible outcomes for clients. Mm-hmm. And that means being able to talk to the insurance companies. If they're using the DSM-5, use the DSM-5. If they've stayed with the DSM-4 and are moving to ICD-10, then you better know how to use the ICD-10. My experience is clients very rarely, unless they're very intellectual, care what their diagnosis is. That's not, you know, in a way, if we remain client-focused, then what we really need to do is what we should be doing all along, which is not chase a diagnosis, that is not try to figure out, based on their behavior, what questions to ask to confirm a diagnosis. Mm -hmm. What we really want to do is to remember that our responsibility is to understand what's happening with the client, understand that within the context of the client's environment and the stressors that they're experiencing within their environments and the obstacles that they have to becoming maximally efficient and functional within their environments, what does a client want? I teach a case where a client wanted to be put on a medication that was going to cause tardive dyskinesia. And he won the right in the courts to be put on that medication because to him it was worth it for the sleep. Now, we have to continuously keep in mind what the advocacy roles are of social workers for their clients and for their organizations within their communities. Mm -hmm. I also think the issue is Social work needs to contribute to the research. The Axis Four may be gone, but the issues in Axis Four have not gone anywhere. Mm -hmm. And so I think we have an obligation to make sure that when we're working in teams in which there is a research agenda, that we think about the larger context and we think about the psychosocial stressors and we think about the role of social work in terms of mediators in the community sense of that, and brokers of services to get the best outcomes. So Mm -hmm. my feeling is these are interesting times in which we live. And so our responsibility is really to be knowledgeable and to be able to move within systems. And the system you're in may use the DSM-5, then learn the DSM-5. The system you're in may move towards the ICD-10, which I think the VA, interestingly yes. enough, is going to yeah. be moving to. So then you better be conversant in the DSM, in the, in the ICD-10. So I think one of the things I've always felt best about our profession is that we know how to adapt and be flexible in that process. To say, you know, who are the constituents? What are the needs? Who are they interacting with? What's our role? How do we broker across those systems. And as long as we continue to think micro, meso, macro, Mm -hmm. then we'll know which one we got to know. My feeling is is it's foolish to dig in and say, well, I'm only using what this or that because it's a changing landscape. You have been listening to a conversation about the DSM-5 
with Drs. Robert Keefe and Barbara Rittner. We hope that you found the subject matter thought-provoking. I'm Charles Sims, your host. Please join us again at In Social Work. Hi, I'm Nancy Smith, Professor and Dean of the University at Buffalo School of Social Work. Thanks for listening to our podcast. We look forward to your continued support of the series. For more information about who we are as a school, our history, our programs, and what we do, we invite you to visit our website at www.socialwork.buffalo.edu.